Welcome to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. My name is Dr Annette Catalaris and thanks for joining me. Influenza is a very common disease. In some years, more than one in five of us are infected, but the prevention and treatment of influenza and even the true incidence has been shrouded in controversy. The pro and anti-vaccination groups are firmly placed in opposite corners, and I have to say that there appears to be a lack of good quality evidence available to inform many aspects of this debate. I'm pleased to welcome Professor Heath Kelly, who will help us untangle the truths and discern the difference between advice based on opinion and on data. Professor Kelly is Head of Epidemiology at the Victorian Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory, now known as the Doherty Institute, an adjunct professor in infectious diseases epidemiology at the Australian National University. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. In the interest of transparency, is there anything you need to declare in terms of a conflict of interest with regard to flu vaccination or treatment? I have no no ongoing association with any major vaccine manufacturer, but I am giving a talk on behalf of Sanofi later this month. A vocal critic of the efficacy of mass influenza vaccination has said what all GPs know. All influenza is flu, but only one in six flus is influenza. Heath, just how common is laboratory-proven influenza virus and what is its true illness burden? This is a difficult question. To answer the incidence question, you really need to do very expensive cohort studies. So the answer is complicated because a lot of influenza is not associated with symptoms. So this is something that I guess we're coming to re-realise. We'd been told that influenza is always this disease with sudden onset, maybe cough, fever and you end up being quite unwell with it. But in fact, influenza is a whole wide clinical spectrum ranging from asymptomatic infection to infection which can put you into ICU and even cause death. The true incidence is not clear. The best estimates uh, are obtained from serological studies which captures influenza which is not only symptomatic but asymptomatic. And as you say, that can be up to 20% in any one season But influenza, which causes you to go to the doctor, so that's influenza-like illness confirmed as influenza, changes with age. It's more common in younger and older persons. But in working age adults, it's probably less than 1%. Okay. Is it fair to say that the mortality from influenza is dropping? So I've got some data suggesting that it's gone from about 30 to 40 per 100,000 cases in the mid-1930s to less than about one per 100,000 from the 1950s onwards, which is long before the mass public immunisation campaigns. So, again, these numbers are all based on modelling. Because influenza has a wide clinical spectrum, and it's even worse in the elderly, lots of people who die from influenza are not diagnosed with influenza. So the best way that people have found to try to get a handle on this is to model the number of influenza deaths and look at excess deaths during the time when influenza is circulating. And some of the modelling data does suggest that there have been a decreased influenza mortality. Okay. Let's talk about the recent Cochrane review of neuraminidase inhibitors, particularly Tamiflu and Relenza. Can you summarise the findings for us, please? So the Cochrane people have been very interested in getting all data, including published and unpublished data, from Roche, the manufacturer of Tamiflu. And their latest meta-analysis published in BMJ suggests that you get a shortening duration of symptomatic influenza 
if you're treated within 48 hours in the community and from the randomized control trials there's no evidence of benefit to hospitalization or death due to influenza but these things are really hard to get at in randomized control trials there was also no evidence that the drug stopped people carrying the flu or spreading it is that is that right yeah that was a surprising finding so is there any role now for these drugs look i think there is so the cochrane people are focused very heavily on randomized control trials but there are observational studies that suggest that these drugs decrease the risk of death in hospitalized patients. Now, these are not randomized control trials. They're observational studies, and observational studies are not the best, they're not considered to be as good level of evidence as randomized control trials. But there are four studies judged independently to be of reasonable quality, between which there was no statistical heterogeneity, all of which suggest a decrease in the risk of mortality. So yes, there is a place for these drugs in the treatment of very severe influenza, but one wonders about the use of them in influenza that's acquired in the community and managed in the community. So was the federal government duped, spending $179 million on stockpiling these drugs? Well, I guess... <laughs> thank you for that question. There, um, <laughs> there are some people who would suggest yes, and I think others know. My own view is that these drugs would be very useful for prophylaxis in closed environments, but not very useful for prophylaxis in the wider community. And one of the main reasons for that is that it's very hard to get the drugs to the people on time. And the presence of adverse drug reactions such as nausea and vomiting and psychiatric effects and renal events in adults and vomiting in children. Yeah, no, they've, they've made more of that in, in this updated review. Yeah, and when you say shortening the, shortening the symptoms, we're talking about 0.6 of a day, nothing completely remarkable. No. So, I mean, you know, it would be very hard to sell a drug on the basis of improving your life by 0.6 of a day. <laughs> um, is, it, is it fair to say then, in a general practice setting, that there's very little place for Tamiflu or Relenza? Well, I think it's interesting. I don't think Australian GPs prescribe these drugs very often. The Most of them are prescribed in Japan. It's, it's extraordinary what proportion of the um, community-prescribed drugs are in Japan. But the other interesting observation there is that Japan had one of the lowest mortality risks for the pandemic during which time these drugs were handed out in the same way they do for seasonal influenza very frequently. So it's a question that's not really sorted out yet. Okay. There is a vocal critic called Peter Doshi who has written widely about um, these drugs and about influenza vaccination. He argues that there's been a massive public health campaign that says that influenza is a serious disease, that we're all at risk of complications from influenza, that the flu shot is virtually risk-free and that vaccination saves lives. Now, when I was the editor of the MJA, um, we, we did a feature on the CSL vaccine that showed, in fact, it did result in the deaths of a couple of children and, and probably caused fitting in up to one in 110 children. And we know in Sweden and Finland, there was a spike in narcolepsy amongst adolescents. What are the harms of influenza vaccine? So really, you've hit on the only two that are known, by and large, trivalent inactivated Influenza vaccine and uh, live attenuated influenza vaccines are very safe. There have been two recent problems in the international literature. One of them you mentioned was the CSL vaccine given to children in 2010. Now that vaccine is no longer licensed for use in children under the age of five and caution is recommended for the use in children aged between five and ten. 
the the narcolepsy thing was actually in uh, teenagers and young adults given one brand of adjuvanted pandemic vaccine and there aren't any adjuvanted vaccines uh, licensed on the market for seasonal influenza anywhere in the world. So I think what we can say is there have been problems, but they should be kept in perspective and that the vaccines that are licensed for the age groups that they're licensed for are safe. Okay, let's talk particularly then about pregnant women, because from what I can find, there's very little data on outcomes in, in, in fetuses and pregnant women. The data are really mostly based on observational studies and the observational studies have shown that the vaccine is safe in pregnancy in the second and third trimesters. And obviously, that we're talking about inactivated vaccine. You wouldn't give a large attenuated vaccine uh, to course. a pregnant woman. Yeah. So I think the observational studies are pretty clear that it's a safe vaccine to give in second and third trimesters. It just surprises me. Uh, usually pregnancy is an area where we need a very high level of the quality of evidence before we give anything to a mother. And yet in when it comes to flu vaccine, we're willing to rely on observational studies, sometimes of dubious quality, with no observational studies on what happens to the fetus. There is one trial of uh, influenza vaccine in mothers and their infants it was done in Bangladesh, it was published in the New England Journal in 2008, and it showed the newborn got uh, protection of about 65%, which is about what the mother's got, which is somewhere around what you expect to get the sort of protection you'd get for influenza required in the community, symptomatic influenza required in the community. Look, I agree with you about we're all very cautious about giving anything to, to pregnant women, and pregnant women are very cautious about it as well. And for that reason, I think there have been a lot of observational studies looking for problems and they haven't found them. Right. So would your advice be that pregnant women should be vaccinated? I think it is reasonable advice. It's what World, the World Health Organization did a review published in 2012 and pregnant women was their first priority for vaccination, first recommended priority for vaccination. So I think it is reasonable advice. The, the pandemic showed that pregnant women were definitely at increased risk of an adverse outcome. I mean, that may have been a pandemic-specific issue, but I think it has focused people back on the increased risk of influenza during pregnancy. Okay, you touched on the efficacy of the vaccine, and from my reading, it seems like the best assessment is that the seasonal vaccine has about a 60% efficacy in those under 65, but less than 30% in those over 55, and this protection wanes over about four months. Tell me why this is such a great vaccine. <laughs> Look, I, I can't tell you that, and it, all, all vaccines like men are not created equal. This is a vaccine that comes down the hierarchy of vaccines, but as a public health intervention, it comes very high up the hierarchy. So if we compare influenza vaccine, we should really consider a broader estimate. So I think of it as being 50 to 70%. In the past, it's been messaged or marketed as 70 to 90%, and that's not really defendable on the evidence base. So I think we can agree that in healthy working adults, the vaccine would prevent 50 to 70 percent of influenza confirmed illnesses that present to a medical practitioner or need to be hospitalised. 
there's a little bit of evidence to suggest, and certainly in general practice, you hear this from patients all the time, that people who were given the flu vaccine were more susceptible to other respiratory viruses. And there was a Canadian study that found up to two and a half times higher rate of pandemic H1N1 influenza among people who had received the 2008 seasonal influenza vaccine that didn't contain that strain. Now, can that be explained by high-risk people were vaccinated so they were more susceptible, or is there another explanation? So I know that study very well, and I know I know it's been also Danuta Skaronsky well. We continue to argue about what that study means. Firstly, let me say I believe the results. So I think there was an increased risk of pandemic influenza infection in people who had received the seasonal influenza vaccine. My explanation for those results is different to Danuta's explanation, and it remains unresolved. But with an actual infection, you get a different repertoire of immune response compared with uh, your immune response to inactivated vaccine. With natural infection, you get an innate, short-acting, broad, cross-protective immune response, followed closely by a broad T-cell cross-reacting immune response, and then you build up your B-cell immune response, which is the antibodies. But with, uh, with an inactivated vaccine, all you get is the antibody response. So it builds a different immune repertoire. And what we thought was going on was people who had received the seasonal influenza vaccine, which I think Danuta found to be of the order of 50 to 60% protective. So, so some of the people who'd received the seasonal influenza vaccine were protected from seasonal influenza, which left them potentially vulnerable to infection from pandemic influenza, which followed close on its heels. Whereas the people who had got seasonal influenza infection had developed a broad immunity, including T-cell immunity, that, that protected them from getting pandemic infection. So it looks like people who'd been vaccinated were at increased risk of pandemic infection. It gets quite complicated. Should influenza vaccine be mandatory for healthcare workers? The, the the opinions are widely divided. Tell us what the benefits and the risks are and what do you think about the ethical debate? Well, look, I don't think it's at all controversial. The answer is no, it should not be mandatory. And the reason being is there's not good enough evidence to show that vaccinating healthcare workers protects their patients. The only evidence that's uh, looked at this in trials, there are four trials, they're all in nursing home residents. There's no specific endpoint outcome. The only outcome that showed uh, a difference is all-cause mortality. And now, the vaccine will protect healthcare workers the same way it would protect other healthy working adults. That's 50 to 70% of the time, on average, within some years, no protection. But we don't have we don't have any good quality evidence to show that it protects the patients. Yes, I, I agree with you. Yeah, so one shouldn't make it mandatory, but on ethical principles, one should encourage healthcare workers who are working directly with patients to be vaccinated every year, but not necessarily healthcare workers who are not working with patients. So now that flu season is upon us, we see in many workplaces that there's free flu vaccination available. Is it good policy to vaccinate healthy working adults each year? It goes to this question about um, recurrent vaccination and whether that's a good idea. And there are some people, some immunologist colleagues who are healthy working adults choose not to have annual influenza vaccination because they want to have a natural immune repertoire and build up, build up a wide immune repertoire. And obviously that worked to protect people in 2009 because older people were 
at much less risk of getting influenza infection. So I guess this goes to some of the things that we've been talking about before, because a large, a large proportion of influenza infections, maybe up to 50%, occur without symptoms. And we learn, those from, we learn that from serological studies, uh, either prospective or retrospective. I think of these infections as immunising infections because there's work from the cohort study in Vietnam that shows that persons with asymptomatic infection have the same B cell and T cell responses as persons with symptomatic infection. So these persons with asymptomatic infection are building an immune repertoire and in fact they're, be they're being immunised but they haven't had the vaccine to be immunised. So if indeed that's occurring half the time to those of us who get infections, and that's all, all of us. So uh, over a period of five years, mostly everybody will have had an infection, but most of us won't have realised it. Then I do worry about vaccinating every year. How does that interfere with this, um, these immunising infections? And the risk, the risk of a, a really adverse event due to flu in a healthy working adult is of the order of five to ten per 100,000. And I'm talking about hospitalisation. That's not even... ICU, about 30% of those maximum would require ICU and 5% of those hospitalised would die. So these are things that need to be taken into account and people can make their own decisions about that. But I think we do need to have a wider conversation about vaccinating healthy working adults every year. There's some interesting stuff coming out again. Most of the stuff about influenza is a process of rediscovery. There's some interesting stuff coming out, primarily driven from the US, indicating that previous regular vaccinees have lower vaccine effectiveness than people who are occasional or non-vaccinees. So that if, for instance, I don't vaccinate and I choose to get vaccinated this year, then my, the estimate for me of my vaccine effectiveness will be higher than if I'd been vaccinated for the last four or five years. And there are also serological studies, that immunogenicity studies, that make the same suggestion. What is your advice? This is a, an area that's quite difficult. My advice is that people need to make up their own mind about influenza vaccination every year if they're a healthy working adult without people in their household or without people in their workplace who are at increased risk of an adverse outcome due to influenza. So, for instance, I don't vaccinate myself regularly. I think one can make a very strong argument for a rational influenza vaccine policy and it's, uh, I've recently learnt that it's the, um, by and large, the policy adopted by Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government. So we can target vaccination at those most at risk, which are children between the ages of naught and about five or six, when we know that the live attenuated influenza vaccine is very effective and safe, and we know it's effective and safe because of those vaccines have been through a large number of randomised controlled trials because they're new vaccines and they had to be licensed in the way that new vaccines have to be licensed, unlike the inactivated vaccine, which has been around forever and has been grandfathered into. So we, we vaccinate children 0 to 5 because they're at risk. Then I think it's fair to say that we can offer inactivated vaccine to anyone at risk of a severe outcome, no matter what their age is. And I guess that would include the elderly until we get better information to the contrary. Heath, so is it science driving this push to vaccinate the healthy worker or is there another agenda? So the WHO has pushed vaccine manufacturers to increase their capacity to be prepared for the next pandemic. 
and we're now at a stage where capacity exceeds the market. The influenza vaccine companies earned $13 billion last year from vaccines, and I guess they're looking for ways to increase their market share. Look, I don't know what the agenda is, but the science would suggest that the vaccine in healthy working adults is 50 to 70 percent effective on average. In some years, there'll be no protection, but that most influenza infections, and when I say most, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily large percentage of most, are uh, of no consequence. So that the risk of an adverse event to healthy working adults, an adverse event like hospital admission, ICU admission or death, is of the order of 10 in 100,000, and then 30% of that and 5% of that. It's very small. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm very grateful for your time. It's a pleasure. I've been speaking with Professor Heath Kelly. Thanks for joining me, Annette Catalaris, for another edition of Observations, podcast from Medical Observer.